Leadership's all about relationships. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Viktor Frankl, life is never made unbearable by circumstance, but only by the lack of meaning and purpose. My guest today, Bill George, is a leading thinker on purpose. He's executive fellow at Harvard Business School, HBS, where he has taught leadership since 2004. And he's also the best-selling author of many books, including Discover Your True North, and a celebrated leader who served as the chair and CEO of Medtronic, the world's leading medical technology company. Bill also served as a director of Goldman Sachs, ExxonMobil, Novartis, Target, and the Mayo Clinic and the World Economic Forum. Bill, thank you for joining us today on the Elevate Podcast. Hey, thanks for inviting me. So I'm always interested to learn sort of when and where people's uh, leadership journey started, especially when they had a, a passion for leadership. Did your start uh, as a child or teenager, or was it something that, that came on later? I had kind of a false start. My father planted the idea that I should be a leader. In fact, when I was nine or 10, he said, son, I'd like you to uh, make up for my failures and become the leader I never became. And even name companies I should lead, like Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Co- or uh, uh, Procter & Gamble, and IBM. Uh, wow. So what did your dad do? He was a consultant. He was a very good consultant, but he never achieved any leadership. He didn't have the personality for it. So, uh, But anyway, I ran for office. Uh, I never got chosen to lead anything in junior high or high school. Uh, and not just, I went to like the student council. I uh, wasn't head of any organizations. And finally, my senior year, I put my hat in the ring to become president of senior class and lost by a margin two to one. So uh, I went as far away as I could get from my home to Atlanta, from Michigan to Georgia Tech, and ran for office six more times and lost all six. So now I'm uh, 0 for 7 and feeling like a real loser. And uh, and I was because some of the guys in uh, Georgia Tech seniors took me aside and said, Bill, no one's ever going to work with you, much less be led by you, because you're moving so fast to get ahead, you don't take time for other people. And they were exactly right. I hadn't really learned that leadership's all about relationships. Interesting. So what did you study? Uh, you went to so at Georgia Tech? Yeah, I studied industrial and systems engineering. And uh, I always wanted to be in uh, leadership or management. And so I potentially took a very general engineering course, and then I went straight through, in those days you could do it, uh, to Harvard Business School, graduated when I was 23. So what you need to do when you're running for student council positions is, is make false promises, which is what like my son learned in fourth grade. I think he, he told everyone he would bring ice cream day back or things that he had no control over. And, and you know, it worked for him. Unfortunately, I think they learned from, from watching the, the politicians. So I think one of your earliest roles, right, was at the was at the Department of Defense. Yeah, I went to work, and that was during Vietnam. And we got excited about taking management ideas into uh, the government. And uh, there were a lot of outstanding people we thought in the Defense Department. I learned a ton. I worked for the CFO of the Defense Department, and so I got involved in very lot, a lot of high level matters. And then the third year I was there, I worked for the Secretary of the Navy. So it was great exposure to great leaders. I learned a lot, but I always wanted to go into business. I went into business after that. I was curious, did you learn as much from the great leaders as you learn from the worst leaders you had? Because I find some people, one of their their driving thing becomes, I'm going to do the opposite of whatever 
he or she did that they remember early in their career? Hey, that's a good question. Very perceptive. My boss was a brilliant accountant, a professor uh, who really couldn't relate to people. So he brought us in to go out and relate, roam the uh, halls of the Pentagon to uh, to work with people to get what he wanted to get done because he, he wasn't comfortable doing it. And uh, Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense. And what I learned from him is don't rely on statistics. I don't think he ever went to Vietnam during that whole time. And so they had no idea what was going on in the ground and they were looking at all the numbers. And we, we uncovered a lot of falsification of the numbers that uh, kind of blew that all up. So uh, that was a very perceptive question, what not to do. I have I worked for a couple of bosses and I learned not what to what not to do. One of them is don't trust the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> well, trust but verify, yeah. you know? Get out and see for yourself. In fact, right now, I'm really urging CEOs and leaders at all levels. Get out and work with your people. Look at the front line during COVID. It was the front line people that saved us, to be honest. Uh, they were out working, risking their lives, whether they're... Uh, my, like my son, who's a surgeon, uh, who's doing surgery during COVID, or probably with COVID patients, or somebody that's working as uh, you know a Target or uh, at a Starbucks, or delivering food for DoorDash, you know, if they and the rest of us are on Zoom screens. Yeah, I know those deep dives. I think are really important for leaders, and they forget about. It. I think sometimes what they're hearing back and what's being fed up is to them is not consistent with what they see on the front line. Someone was just telling me they got back from sort of a front line tour. And they just had a totally different perspective on on where things were falling short and why. And, you know, the stuff that was being fed back up to them was filtered in in ways that I think they really needed to get that information for themselves and to see what was going on. Yeah, I Medtronic when I joined the company, I knew a lot about technology, nothing about medicine. And so I learned it through the eyes and ears of the doctors. And uh, I saw between 700,000 procedures in the 12 years I was there, just gowning up, putting on the greens. Doctor invited me in to watch him do surgery. And then they debriefed me, and I learned so much about it. And uh, same, just about being out with our employees, just going to the lunchroom, talking to some production workers about the quality problems are. I learned a lot more there than I did in quality. <laughs> right, because the quality person is going to tell you that everything's going great, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Or give me statistics like it's 90, 98.5. And they say, Mr. George, if we had 98.5 quality. You realize we make I make a thousand products a year. You know, that means what 15 people be dead. You know, uh, no way. So coming out of the Department of Defense, what how did you train what was your role into the private sector? Well, I went to work for Litton Industries, uh, which at the time was a conglomerate. I learned pretty quickly the the fallacies of the conglomerate model. It took GE a while to figure it out. But yeah. nine months in, I went to work for a, a guy who was not entrepreneuring, went to college, who had started the microwave oven business and kind of vending companies and restaurants. And he gave me an opportunity to run the business. Nine months in, uh, they had started the consumer microwave oven business. There was no market. So I was kind of like an entrepreneur. Because we had to start, and I had to hire people twice my age, twice my salary. I was 27 years old. Fabulous learning experience. We did exceptionally well. Grew greater than 50 percent for uh, eight or per year for eight years. It was just great. You know, it was like having a tiger by the tail, and I loved it. And I learned about how do you build a team because I didn't know anything about microwave ovens. I didn't know anything about the appliance business. I saw appliance dealers, and so I got people that I learned from them. I always learn to learn from my subordinates. And so how, how what role were you brought into Medtronic at, at initially? Uh, chief operating officer, number two. But my 
my boss, who was a terrific guy, was uh, the CEO, was uh, 63 years old. And we had a hard stop, 65, that we'd applied to our founders. So it was going to be clear he was going to retire. And so then I got the job two years later. So it gave me a chance, knowing I was the kind of likely heir apparent to organize a company on a global basis and, and do things like that and get it going, spin off some businesses. So what were some of the leadership challenges that you saw when you took over at Medtronic? Well, we we frankly did not have the leadership depth that we needed. We had all functional people. We didn't have any general managers. And so I promoted some talented people to general manager from it within. They performed exceptionally well. Not all of them, but several of them did. And uh, reorganized on a global basis. And uh, we had to hire a few people. I made one huge mistake in that process. I had been president of Honeywell Europe for three years. And I loved the job. And we I decided to create such a position for, for Medtronic. And uh, so I pointed a guy who was very capable, quite a bit senior to me, knew the business extremely well, come through an acquisition. And six months after I appointed my general counsel comes to my office and said, Bill, can I close the door? I said, sure. Yeah, this isn't going to be good. This I got to be good. <laughs> and he called up the chief auditor and he said, this guy had been running a bribery fund uh, on behalf of Italian doctors. So he had to go. That was the easy part. I called him up, said, John, you got to come over and meet with me on Monday morning. And, uh, you know, I showed him a compliance statement he'd signed. But that was easy, honestly, because what was hard was going to the board of directors as kind of the I'd been there a year and a half and the, the top management team and saying, look, I made a terrible mistake. I didn't check out this guy's values. He didn't change. We didn't check him out. So I learned never to do that again. But it was a, a very good learning experience. And you know, we had to report it to the SEC, Foreign Corrupt Practices. They said, no, it wasn't a violation. But still, everything is very public. How do you determine when you're picking a leader? Uh, I mean, how do you think about assessing their their values? Well, I, I'd like to do some kind of, uh, if you will, psychological assessment. I ask them a lot of questions about their values. Tell me a time, Robert, you violated your values. What did you learn from that experience? We all do it. The yeah. question, what did you learn? Are you a learner? Or, you know, are you going to cover it up and say, oh, no, I never did that? No, we all make mistakes. Come on. And so I want leaders who are willing to admit their mistakes, be vulnerable and uh, and then go fix them and learn from, you know, constantly learn. So that's how I check out. And uh, and of course, we do background checks and things like that. But sometimes those aren't very revealing. So I, I like the personal interview and then a psychological assessment uh, helps out a lot. What does the assessment say? Is it a specific type or what is what is the outcome of an assessment like that? Say? Oh, combination of tests and intensive interviews give you a lot of insight into how grounded someone is in their values. Everyone says they have good values, but you, you learn a lot more whether they're really grounded in who they are and uh, whether they're solid or not. And that's what you have to work out. Watch out for people that can spin a good yarn, but uh, really aren't very solid people. <laughs> Particularly politicians, but we'll, we'll get we back won't to that. Go there. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't mean specifically, but but I think it is an example of you know a value. Right, it is a constant, or you're just willing to constantly change it based on the winds. Like there's a big, or if it helps keep you in power, then it's not really um, a value. Those aren't values. Values right. are things that you know may come out of your family, may not. You learn sometimes the hard way. These, and we ask students at Harvard Business School, what are things lines I would never cross? You know, what are some things that, okay, I can do? 
you know, and uh, I think you find out pretty much where people stand, at least if they're honest and open with you. And I don't like people aren't. So, so I was part of uh, a pretty intensive leadership program. Uh, now it's I've been saying six or seven years, but now it must be seven or eight years uh, ago, um, led by a gentleman named Warren Rustand, uh, who, who you may know or come across. And it was 25 people from probably 10 different countries, and you all came together. And I really thought it was going to be about external. Like, how do you lead other people? What do you do? What are the best practices and tactics? And I I can only describe the first two days as sort of like a big mirror that everyone had to sort of oh. look into. You know, yeah. and that's where I first understood this, this concept of kind of authentic leadership, which, you know, really is one of the epiphanies I had there and, and, and in thinking about how we structure leadership training is that I think when you're a new manager, it is very logical that you would adopt a lot of best practices from other people. Uh, and I think I had realized my leadership strat was sort of like a patchwork quilt of some of the things worked, some of them didn't work or otherwise, and that it did really have to strip the whole thing down to to core values. And 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 that's actually how I originally found your book, True North. I was saying one of the few books that lives uh, on my desk in about a set of ten, and understanding that, yeah, I mean, the the really the only way you're going to lead, or you know, Jim Collins, I think a level four or five leader is authentically, you know, who you are. I and and the sort of what you think, what you say, and what you do are are all aligned. Um, and I just I, I saw that firsthand. But I think it is an evolution. I do think I think when someone's just starting to lead, it they need to probably get a few reps <laughs> under their belt. Uh, and and again, it's very common I think for them to say, "Look, this is my." That's the moment you realize, like my I had a great leader, and they did this, so I'm going to do this. But it doesn't feel like me at all. Yeah. No, you can't emulate other people. And I think you got it just right. You can't lead other people until you learn to lead yourself. And if you aren't solid and grounded, you're knowing what your purpose is, knowing your values, your beliefs, and this is who I am. And hey, man, if you don't like me the way I am, that's fine. That's no problem. But, you know, this is who I am. But if you try to fake it to make it to be something else, uh, you'll wind up in a very bad place, in my opinion. Do you think people are trying to, I know companies do it, but do you think leaders are, are just trying to appeal to everyone too broadly? Like to me, it's always like, again, if a company has a certain set of values, probably 2% of the people appeal to that. You know, there's some people that are going to like, similar to what you said. And last time I hired someone, I was like, here's why you're going to hate working for me. And here's why you'll like working for me. They're basically two sides of the same coin. So yeah. you should decide if, and actually it was someone who was really bored in their job. And I, and he's like, I was like, I promise you'll never be bored. You might be overwhelmed, but not, but not bored. And he still tells me that that's, that's true to this day. So do you think, why, why is it that leaders have a hard time with some of this stuff around authenticity or the soft stuff and don't really understand that Again, it's hard to get up every day and do something and pretend to be something that you really aren't. It sure is. But I think a lot of people are looking for the uh, adulation or the gratitude of the external world. And they think it has to do with your title, your money, how much you're worth. Uh, you know, if you get newspaper write-ups, uh, how much power, how many people you run. It has nothing to do with any of that. You know, that says nothing about your leadership. And I think people get caught up. It's it's really the trap we try to talk about in my books is how you get caught up and you can lose your way in chasing things. And by the way, you can do it at 22 and you can do it at 62. And I've seen people do it all all times in between. So it worries me a lot. It makes me sad that you don't feel good enough about yourself 
that you want to try to be something else. You know, who is it? Mark Twain said, you know, or maybe Thornton Wilder said that just be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, yeah, people and remember the Jack Welch era. Everyone at GE, it wasn't it bought Jack as much. Everyone at GE was trying to emulate Jack. And that was and by the way, none none of that has aged well. Like there is nothing that has aged worse than the whole Jack Welch leadership tree and experiment. <laughs> and and I feel sorry for him. But you know, one of the issues, of course, he's deceased, but one of the issues right now is how do you look at people that work with you, Robert? Do you look at them as a cost or an asset? And we went through 20, we've gone through 20, 30 years of looking at people as a cost. I want to minimize that instead of saying, no, people are my greatest asset. I said that to a group, a company the other day that has 300,000 people, one of the world's great global companies. I said, your value of this company, you love your brands and products. I tell you, the value of the company walks out the door every night when they go home. That's where your asset is. And that's where your leadership leaders are. And if you lose that, you know, it erodes pretty quickly. What percent of people do you think have clarity on their personal values? Ah, that's a really good question. People in business, we're going to say, because I don't know about certain yeah. other, uh, you know, some fields are easier than others. But uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, 20, 30 percent. Uh, unfortunately, aren't willing to work. And they're kind of looking around, how should I behave? It's okay to have role models when you're younger. I had role models. It's great to have mentors. Uh, you know, but I think then you got to evolve into your authentic self and how you're going to lead. You know, most of we're not born leaders. You know, we we have to develop it. We develop through understanding people and about relationships. That's why I lost all those elections. That's why it took me a while struggling to get there. You didn't promise free ice cream to the third graders. <laughs> I also one thing that I have seen in, in working with a lot of leaders on their core values is I, I think a lot of them run pretty deep to you know, formative childhood experiences. And I, I think people, you know, they don't want to go there. I mean, I, I, I'll give you an example of, of one that I've seen a couple times and and then interestingly how it plays out in leadership. And I'm curious, he's probably seen it similar, but I, I discovered when someone has a core value of trust, right? Or something in discussions comes up with how important trust is that it was usually, I never asked what it is, but it's like, did you have some violation of trust early in your life. And the, and usually they don't have to answer the question, the look on their face, you know, says the answer. But it's interesting because here's how I see it manifest for them as a leader. When someone is five minutes late on a report, uh, or, you know, when they're, sorry, when they're, when they're late, five minutes late for a meeting, the report's a little off, they do something, they're actually triggering like primal trust <laughs> issues in the leader and the leader will sort of overreact. And if they don't have a self-awareness on that, I, I found twice in these cases that they had a whole bunch of people in the penalty box that just weren't, <laughs> they weren't getting out and they didn't know how to explain to them that that would get them in the penalty box. Well, trust is everything. You know, we've gone to this idea of the all powerful leader, command and control leadership. People are emulate the military in the world war two. That's not the way the military trains people today at all. They stopped it, 20 years ago, but companies are still running command and control. Exactly. And and no one wants to work for command and control leader. You don't. I don't. You don't want somebody that says, hey, Robert, just do this. Just follow these orders and do exactly what I tell you to. No one wants to do that. But that's kind of the old model. And so I think building trust is key. Why would you work for somebody you couldn't trust? If they don't tell you the truth, you know, if you can't trust them to tell you the truth, they can't tell you what's going on. Why would you work for someone like that? I wouldn't. You know, I think trust is everything. And that's one thing leaders have to build up is trust. You do it by telling the truth. 
You do it by transparency, you know, not keeping all the right. secrets wrote up at your office. Uh, no one likes that. And so I think today, you, particularly with the millennials, Gen Xers, you have to build trust first. No one's going to just work in an organization just to draw a paycheck. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So why, I agree, in the in the private sector, I think there's still some multi-generational business stuff that are trying to hold on to the old playbook as, as long as they can, I've seen. But but why are we electing strong men and women political leaders all around the world? So if companies are moving in that direction, why, why <laughs> from a political leadership are we moving in the opposite direction? Isn't it ironic? You know, and I would say I, I know my ideas work in business. I've seen so many people at all levels yeah. are authentic and made it spectacularly well. I don't know if they work in politics. I don't know if you get elected. You know, we're kind of pulled like this in politics. And are you, are you kidding? You're talking about your son. You have to promise the world. No, you can't deliver. Or you have to take extreme positions. And I'm kind of a guy that's right in the middle, you know, uh, kind of moderate. And so I, I don't know, and I feel very sad. But here's the interesting thing. The Edelman Trust Meter had business leaders at the lowest level of all walks of life professions back in 2009 and 10. Today, business leaders are the most trusted. Now, why is that? I think people have lost faith in the politicians. They lost confidence in them getting anything done. They know business, they have a lot of resources. And they say, hey, we need you to help solve this problem in climate change, this problem in healthcare. It's probably an income inequality, whatever it is, uh, water problems, you know, you name the problem, diversity problems. So I think people are looking to business leaders to help solve problems. I think for a lot of people, the notion of clarifying their values and life's purpose seems 
totally overwhelming. What what is what is someone listening to this and saying, you know what, I really need to figure out my value. I need to figure out my North Star or True North. Like, where do you suggest that they start other than uh, interviewing with you? <laughs> well, my whole book is written for that purpose. We have a workbook that goes with it. I'm not trying to sell books, but what I'm yeah. saying is go and you said, go back to your childhood. What were those hurts? What were those abuses you got? You know, maybe you never know if you're my father loved me, but he could never hug me. He could never touch me. It was kind of like shake hands with a man's son and she'd shake, you know. And so what are those hurts? What are those core hurts that you have? Deal with them. Talk to people about them. Get them out. Realize, hey, everyone else, everyone has that. You know, everyone has gone through tough challenges. I believe you learn more from your challenges, your crucibles, that I call them, uh, than you do from your successes. So just saying, hey, you know, I, I played High school and college tennis, I tell you, I learned a lot more when I lost than when I won. Because when I won, I thought I was better than I was. But the same is true with your challenges. That's when it all gets stripped away. And you have to look at your mirror, and self in the mirror, and say, who am I? If you get fired from your job, if you go through a failed marriage, if, you know, there are a lot of things. If you feel like you never had the love of a parent or you didn't really understand why your parents got divorced, whatever these pains are, you were sick as a child. I think through those, if you process those, you'll come out a lot stronger. Say, yeah, I got through that. I can get through anything. I tell you, some of the best of all my military officers that are in the classroom that are retired military vets, yeah, they put their life on the line. So, you know, it's not just about a few thousand dollars a year. They, they put their life on the line. So they're some of the best leaders I know. Well, once you understand these things, what's your responsibility as a leader to sort of share it with the people that you lead? Good question. Absolutely. I think you have that and help lead them through that process. Of course, that's what we do in the classroom. But I think beyond that, help lead them through that process. Because until you know who you are, you can't discover your purpose, which we call your North Star. You can't discover your purpose. Otherwise, you're gonna be, you'll give us some wishy-washy things like, I want to make this world a better place. Well, I do too. But how are you going to do that? Yeah, yeah. So we have to get more specific and what are the unique gifts you bring to the world? But you only do that having a deeper understanding. What are your beliefs? What are your principles you lead by? What are your values? And when you get clear on those things and uh, and then get some honest feedback. I'm a big believer that uh, the only way to, to lead today is you, you have to get like 360 feedback, honest feedback from your subordinates and peers. And if you become tone deaf to that, you won't know how you're showing up because it's hard to see yourself as others see you. And you need to then go back to them with that feedback and tell them what you heard, right? Exactly. And here's, yeah, hey, I'm struggling with this. I'd say I'm very impatient. And you're going to tell me I'm impatient. I know I'm impatient. <laughs> yeah, I like to get a lot of things done. But yeah, I'll try to modulate that. Or, you know, sometimes I'm too direct and it hurts your feelings. I didn't mean to. But, you know, I feel like if we just cut to the, the chase, so to speak, and not have a lot of flowery words, we can get things done. But, you know, that's probably my weakness, too. Yeah, I, I say strength at 105 degrees starts to go into, I, yeah, go into weakness. Well, I, I, I like two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Heads and strength, turn it over. But if you get too extreme about it, okay, like I'm very challenging of people that work with me in the classroom, but I can shut people down without knowing it. You know what I mean? Just by being so challenging. All right. So in, in your new book, uh, the Emerging Leader Edition of True North, I, I really, you, interesting, you share this five damaging leader archetypes. I feel like I've had them all. Some people maybe were all of them <laughs> looking at them. Uh, so imposters, rationalizers, glory seekers, loners, and shooting stars. I'm curious, like, 
how you settled on those and if you have some examples of them or uh you know could give a little kind of brief description of each of those archetypes yeah i i would say that uh, you know i learned by studying a lot of people and working with a lot of people who lost their way and i think it's one of the saddest things remember elizabeth holmes who started theranos and and there was nothing there you were not going to get a finger prick those kind of- so that's an imposter <laughs> yes she was an imposter she pretended like she's an executive. She's 19 years old. Everyone fell for her. Hey, they got the value up to $9 billion. Crazy, yeah? So imposters, it's most important how they are perceived to the outside world. Yes. Yes, that's right. And they try to put on a show for you. Hey, a lot of that's what people do in acting, by the way. Look, and, it makes for a great works. Netflix <laughs> television series. Exactly. But yeah. it doesn't, doesn't work. And rationalizers, I have somebody that's very close to We served on three boards together, including Goldman Sachs, Rajat Gupta. And at the time during the financial crisis in 2008, when everything was on the line and Warren Buffett agreed to confidentially invest money in Goldman, he went out and leaked that to right after, you know, within seconds, 16 seconds after it was approved, he uh, he leaked it to a well-known inside trader and sadly spent two years in jail. But why did he do that? You know, today he still rationalizes behavior, you know, well, it wasn't really that bad or I didn't actually make money on the trades. Well, if you know the law, you you know, he did. So sometimes people rationalize their way through. I've seen Mark Zuckerberg do that a lot, too. So, I, yeah, I get why imposters do what they do. But what is a rationalizer hoping? Are they, they just you're saying they're just as things come along, they ignore reality? You know, it wasn't really my fault. Uh, You know, there's a lot going on in the world. There's all these other factors really didn't have anything to do with me. And so I never admit my mistakes. I don't admit I offended you or I don't admit the mistakes. I mean, I missed my numbers or we didn't deliver uh, on that. You know, like in sports, if you're a rationalizer, you're never going to be a winner because when you're in sports, when you lose, you better figure out why you lost. You better go look at the tape, right, and figure out why. You know, the other team cheated. Well, that's not really what happened. You know, we lost the game. And so, yeah, that's what rationalizers do. So glory seekers. <laughs> yeah, they're always, they're going for the glory. You know, uh, people get caught up with their own success. They they want a bigger house than everyone else. They want to get a lot of media. And, of course, media is great when it's good. And then it can turn and go up like that and go down like that. So, uh, you know, and I think they're only looking for, uh, the adulation of the masses, how people perceive them. And uh, that's a sad situation when you see it because they don't have genuine relationships. They're so concerned about impressing other people that they don't know well. They'd rather go talk to a crowd of a thousand people and impress them than they would have two close friends. Uh, yeah, I always say like if you're hiring, constantly hiring someone who has never been hired within a circle of people they know before, that's always a that's always a worrisome sign if they keep finding a new pond to to swim in. I, but I, wouldn't Elizabeth Holmes, I mean, this seems like a terribly toxic combination, but be both a glory seeker and an imposter? She sure was. Yeah. And that's not an unusual combination. Watch out for that. And people get fooled. I doubt how people get fooled, aren't you? I mean, it really surprises me that uh, people get caught up in that. Uh, they rationalize that um, someone else is involved, <laughs> so they must have done their homework. Okay, yeah. lo- loners. Well, you know, loners, not, we're not talking about introverts. We're talking about people that don't listen to other people. You know, I found myself in a situation, every job I've ever been in, I didn't know as much of the people who work with me. I darn well better listen to them. But once you go off on your own, you say you keep your own counsel, you're not listening to other people, you're in trouble. And I remember Dick Fold did that when he was uh, at Lehman Brothers uh, in the crisis when they were going bankrupt. And 
Hank Paulson kept saying, Dick, you got to recapitalize. That means lowering the value of deleting a value of a stock. And he wouldn't do it. And so he went out of business. But he's a real loner. But there, I've seen a lot of people that you think are gregarious, great people, but they turn inward and they pull back from listening to anyone and they stop listening. And when leaders do that, you know they're in trouble. So this one sounds like it's a more of a change. Like imposters probably are always imposters, but this this is you can go through a phase and really yeah. damage your leadership. No, I think that is true. It, it is. It's a psychological thing. When things are going your way, hey, you're out there. Hail fellow, well met. Hey, how are we doing? Let's play golf today. Things aren't going your way. You pull back. That's when you stop listening to people. All right. How about the shooting star? The shooting star. Seen a lot of them. They uh, they go up one quickly and they come back down because uh, they really uh, are only out for the glory. And, and the time, what happens to them in companies? They're very dangerous because everyone says, "Oh, this guy's fantastic." Next thing you know, he'll quit because he, he's feeling the heat. He had, didn't deliver on his commitment, so he'll go somewhere else. Then he does it all over again, and then over again, and then over again. Travis Kalanick did this at Uber, and uh, you know he burned out. You know, and he actually had a so bear. shooting stars. So what they kind of leave a mess in their wake? Is yes. that sort? Of, yeah, oh, yeah, for sure, for sure they leave a mess. You got to clean it up. So when the t- when when the going gets tough, they leave. They bail. Yeah, they don't like. They can't. And I think of yourself like being in a foxhole. You know. Yeah. Do you want to know that person next to you? Sal, they're there through tough times. If they bail when times aren't going well, you, you never have confidence. So you want to look for something. I see that people that change jobs all the time. As soon as the water gets a little hot, they bail out. Well, that, that's been the major through line of this great resignation, now great regret, is that, look, I, the way I looked at it, I said this a few times, is that clearly there was a lot of stress. There were some there were some you know, value-seeking, existential stuff going on. But there were sort of three different scenarios. One, I don't want to do what I'm doing. I hate it. I want to do something else. I want to be a farmer. Great. Like, you know, that was your life moment to figure that out. Two, which what you just said was, you know, I was in the foxhole with these people over the last year, and I don't want to be in the foxhole with them. Like, I want to find people that I want to work with. The third group, which was just, this was hard, and I'm tired. And I think everyone was tired because they're teaching kindergarten, you know, in the next room. and, And and just thought that a new job would make that easier. And I think that has been proven by the numbers to be largely, you know, untrue. They just thought that they would erase two years of a pandemic by going to do something else. I mean, I actually think it's the teams that bonded during that time, doubled down, came out of the fort that will probably make it to the next peak. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with the first two you, you characterize. It's yeah. the people that bail when the going gets tough, you know. And that's what you see. You see it in sports. You see it in business. You see it in a lot of walks of life. Who are the people that are going to double down and get the job done? You can count on them. And other people, hey, they're moving on. They don't like tough times. Well, hey, life is full of a lot of tough times, like it or not. And the people that do well. And and that's the other interesting thing. We're in multiple intersecting crises now between Russia and (laughs) the crisis of the day. Yeah. If you don't like stress, then you probably need to get out of business altogether, right? Yeah, and I had a CEO tell me this morning, he's running a $15, $20 billion company. He said, uh, you know, my people are just so tired. I said, yeah, that's right. So you got to re-inspire them because we, you got a job to do. And he said, well, I don't know what's coming. I said, no, it's going to be tough. And by the way, in a crisis like we're in now, it's not the people with the big titles that step up. Uh, it's, you, you learn quickly who can handle it, who can't. In Goldman Sachs, we had... 
Lloyd Blankstein stepped up brilliantly as did Jamie Dimon during the crisis, but we had two co-COOs and one of them uh, stepped up and really became Lloyd's pot partner and did everything. The other one would not come into the office. He literally would not come into the office. He was so traumatized and he just disappeared, went off on his own. Never yeah, heard this, this is where I think Jim Collins actually hit it dead on with the Stockdale paradox, you know, in his book around the leaders, you know, you need something to look forward to and some motivation, but then also acknowledge the brutal reality. You know, there was a debate I was part of recently with someone talking about, you know, with all the stuff going on in the world. Well, what if you said something and it makes them anxious and impacts how, how someone feels and the other person was like, you can't control how people feel and reality is reality. So Trying to pretend like the reality doesn't exist is not going to make the situation better for anyone. We can't protect you from tough times. So if if you can't handle that, okay. But the fact I would kind of gloss it over and say everything's fine. When you darn darn well, it's not fine. My my experience is when you sit down with your people and say, hey, bad things happen. It's not going well. Here's what we have to do. Here's the plan to get better. But I can tell you, it's not going well and it's going to be painful, you know? But and, and he, it seems like the here are the things we control. It seems like the worst thing could feel that you have no control over your destiny, right? Well, you figure out, of course, it's a leader's job to figure out what you can control and get back. I started saying Animal K is Xerox. They're going bankrupt a number of years ago. And she sat her way down and said, it's not going to be a lot of fun here. If you love this company, you like its values, and you're really willing to pull with me, I just got the CEO job. Maybe some of you wanted it, but I got it, and I'm looking for the people going to go with me. The rest of you, okay, it's okay to leave. Two of her top people said, I'm leaving. So she said, fine, now we'll move on. You know, At least I know who's with me. And again, you wouldn't want to be in a tough situation if you couldn't count on people to double down and do the job. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, I I mean, I was actually surprised. You know, I was in a lot of CEO groups and in, in during the COVID kind of collapse and even our our company. And up until March 2020, it had been 10 years of a Goldilocks economy. If you had graduated in your 20s, you didn't even know what the word recession was, right? Yeah. It was all it was all up and to the right. So when companies were communicating to people that this is really bad, <laughs> like People didn't even really believe it. Or they're like, why are you tormenting us with this? It was just a very interesting paradigm of like, they're like, no, no, really, when's my raise? And everyone was like, no, 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 like, really, like, we don't know what they're going to be in business in four weeks. A guy I admired years, decades ahead of me, Max Dupre, said, the leader's first job is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. 
And uh, in between that, you become a servant of your people. But the idea is we have to define reality. And if I don't define reality, how can people step up? People will look to their leaders to say, what's really going on? Tell me the truth. And they can handle it if you tell them. But if you try to fake it or or tell them everything's fine when they know it's not fine, it's not never going to end well. And then they say they don't trust you anymore. And they don't believe you. I remember distinctly during the first few weeks of COVID, we were communicating very openly with our people around. Clients were stopping. They were telling us they're going to pay in 180 days. And like, look, here's what we're watching. Here's what we're looking at otherwise. We got some feedback from people, again, that we were basically traumatizing them, you know, telling them this stuff. And why why were we doing that? Interestingly enough, two to three weeks later, their partner, uh, you know, spouse, roommate, cousin laid off out of nowhere you know company never said anything and then and then people kind of came back and started i don't want to say apologizing but saying hey i now appreciate that we were being honest and and transparent about it um because you know their company didn't say anything in two weeks and now suddenly third of them are gone yeah exactly and so you know you sit down and say look guys we're gonna have to have a layoff here and you know maybe some of you want to sign up for early retirement maybe some of you want to volunteer and then we can figure out how to get this done. Or maybe everyone wants, you know, I know countries where people voluntarily say, okay, I'll go on a reduced work week so we can help others. Whatever it is, let's work it out. Let's figure it out. Look, you always want to be a part of the solution. No one wants to have the solution imposed on them. So if you understand how to lead people, you want to engage them in the problem and people support what they help create. If they help create the solution, they'll take on tough problems and they'll come up with more solutions than you ever dreamt of. Yeah. and and. You know, that that's always been my message. I think if people think they can't control it or it's something that's just happening to them, I think some companies uh, actually try to deflect to a macro problem, right. which is actually really disempowering. It kind of sounds like the train's coming at you on the track and you're not you're not yeah. able to do anything. I mean, that's it has to be a careful message. Like the train's coming, but we got three or four options and I need all your ideas and yeah. here's how we're gonna try to go around it. I, I like that. You got it. That's facing the reality. Now let's solve the problem. Here's the reality. Look, we got a problem with our, we have a problem with one of our products at Medtronic. Okay, this is the reality. Now what are we going to do about it? What was your biggest leadership crisis at Medtronic? <laughs> we had a, uh, we uncovered. <laughs> Bad memory, sorry. <laughs> one person, but a lot of other people who yeah. were uh, paying bribes. And so I had to go through and I hired a new chief operating officer, a new head of international art Collins, who became my successor. He did a fantastic job, but we had a lot of weird things going on. So Medtronic was very value centered, very ethical in the United States, but outside the United States, it was pretty loose. It was kind of like one of Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, if they're paying bribes in Argentina, I guess <laughs> it's I totally illegal. Do. Yeah. And that's right. And so we were very concerned. We had to terminate a lot of people and get a lot of much more solid people. But that was a real crisis. That uh, was deeply concerning to me. Uh, Did you ever have a major recall? We did not have the big one. We had a number of smaller ones. Yeah, that was tough, though. Medtronic had two major ones before I got there and almost sunk the company. Why? Not because of the recall, because they went into denial and doctors would call in. Hey, this product doesn't work. I said, no, doctor, we've never heard anyone. You're doing it wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you're putting it in wrong. It's your problem. And so uh, then they find out from a lot of their friends that had the same problem. And uh, then it got really, really ugly and the track lost a lot of share. So I put in a couple of policies. One policy was we're never going to blame the doctor for the problem. We designed a product so it wasn't perfect. We got to make it foolproof for him to use. 
That was one rule. And the other one was, since I was new and didn't know what was going on, I said, I, we need to have, we need to surface all the problems right up top. And you will not get fired here for making a mistake, but you will get fired for covering one up. Yeah, Ray, Ray Dalio has that same. Uh, yeah, awesome. Look here, we, once we know the problem, I don't want to put a band-aid or a problem say, oh, Bill, it's all taken care of. No, no, let's get the best people in the company or we'll bring in experts from outside. Let's figure out what's the root cause of this problem. See, Boeing didn't do that on the 737 MAX. And I wrote a couple of cases. I'm very critical of them because, hey, if you talk to the engineers, they knew what the problem was, but they didn't want to acknowledge it. Well, when you read those memos, it's really disturbing when you read the things that people wrote internally to each other. Yes. And to what? To save a couple hundred million in production costs, it's now cost them north of $50 billion, probably. Exactly. And, yeah. Yes, it had. All because... They wouldn't listen to the truth. They wouldn't take. They wouldn't get out and figure out what's going. They lost touch with their engineers. Well, I was thinking, you know, the historical case study that proves the opposite of that is the Tylenol one, yeah. right? Where where someone tampered with a single product in a single store, and Johnson Johnson could have said we didn't do it, and someone messed with it, but they just took all the product off the shelves. Like again, it became it became their problem. Yeah, and Jim Burke became the role model, and he came up to Harvard Business School after that, and he said. Uh, you know, if you don't have a moral compass, you're going to swim in chaos. And some of those people I talked to you about earlier are swimming in chaos. And it's interesting that even today, I was very surprised that uh, J&J is one of the companies said, we're going to continue to stay in Russia. Really? Why? Because we have life-saving drugs. And I talked to Joaquin Dorado. Our credo calls for us to provide those drugs to people. We feel a moral obligation to do that. So he's got a well-grounded reason for doing it. Hey, he's not selling soft drinks or, you know, selling candy. Yeah. And so I respect that. How can I not respect that? It's based on his credo. So I always say, if you go back to your personal purpose and your company's purpose and your values. They read, they read the credo. The speech was the actual credo, right? When they did the, the recall. Did. Yeah. No, they did. But then you know, they're reading it now, too, you know, uh, in these decisions, which is fascinating to me that that is sustained itself and they can look upon that today this is why i can't listen to a single politician these days because the the whatever the moral principle is on monday applied to one side of the aisle it's gone on wednesday and they can't even like listen to themselves i'm like clearly you don't believe in this because you believe in it when it helps your team you know i I think the test of a value is when you believe in it and it hurts your team so I have a lot of friends that are very upset with me because I'm not going after that. What I'm saying is to the business leaders, stiffen your back, do the right thing, yeah. stay true to who you're at. See, everyone takes the wrong lesson from what happened about Chapik at Disney with the governor of Florida and all that. You know, problem with Chapik, he said, I'm not going to comment on this. I'm not going to defend my own employees. And then he got criticized. So then he changed his position midstream and he makes himself vulnerable to the other side. So both sides hate him, you know. <laughs> And and if he had just said, you know, yeah, we got a lot of gay employees. We're going to defend them. We're going to stand by them. So it's here in Minneapolis. You recall that George Floyd was murdered about two and a half miles from where I'm standing right now. And uh, it was a real crisis. And any CEO in this town that didn't stand up and defend not just their black employees, but people of color, anyone that was concerned about that uh, wasn't going to survive. They not only had to defend them, they had to have a plan. Say, we we look closely. We aren't doing as well as we thought we were. You know, we thought we were doing better. It kind of stripped the Band-Aid off and found some cancer underneath. So we got to fix that. And as long as the Band-Aid's covering it up, and that's what's happening here. But I tell you, the CEOs were the first to really step into that. 
and say, we're not doing it right. We're going to make a difference. Let, let me ask you, because those are a couple of situations where I think it was also there was direct impact on the employees. I, I've heard from a lot of leaders these days, they're really struggling with, does my company need an opinion on everything? And whose opinion huh. is it, right? In a 24 by seven, is it is it the opinion of the leadership team? Is it the opinion of the company? People are really struggling with what are the way, way inable issues and, and the not way inable issues. Well, I get asked that all the time by, particularly we said group of 40 CEOs together at Harvard. Yeah. And they're asking that. And we're actually teaching them. Go back to your mission and values. That's why I use the current day example yeah. of Joaquin Duato and J&J. He went back to the values. So you may say, I don't agree with that. We should never supply the Russian people with anything. And I've heard him be criticized for that. And he said, no, no, this is what we believe. We're going to stay true to that. Okay, Robert, you can criticize me, but this is what we believe. And he's solid as can be. And I've heard a number of people like that. But it's when you're, you aren't clear and you can't take on everything. You know, you really have to decide what are you going to take on yeah. and what are the changes? You know, I think education is a huge problem in this country, but I'm focused more on leadership and my wife's focused on healthcare because you And can't someone else is focused on education, right? I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. yeah, exactly. And a lot of people want to ch change government. I know how hard that is. <laughs> so I'd write, no, I'd really like to change people so that they're going to do the right thing. And they're not going to bow to political pressures because once you get in that game, you get whipsawed. One time it's the Republicans' office, next time it's the Democrats. You're just going to get whipsawed because no one knows what you stand for. So I've, I've seen you're popping all over CNBC the last few weeks with your article uh, on Mark Zuckerberg. I think you said you referred to him sort of pulling into the loner archetype and said they're just not going to do well as long as he's there. And I think he also said he really lost his way. What what's changed? I know, I know the you know Marshall Goldsmiths have what, what got you there, what got you here won't get you there. What what do you think has has changed, and are, are do you really think Facebook is is seen its better days? Well, Mark's a brilliant inventor, and he created the whole field of social media. So you got to give him credit. He's built a very successful, you know, two billion people on his platform. Yeah. Unbelievable. No one's ever done anything like that in history. That's thirty percent of the world's population. It's amazing. But I think he never had time to really get grounded. He's been CEO for 19 years. And I think what's happened is for a long time, I felt like, you know, he had Don Graham on his board, Donald Graham, the former owner of the Washington Post, who passed away. But, but you know, he was a wise advisor. And he had Sheryl Sandberg as his partner, just like I had a medical doctor named Glenn Nelson as my partner in Medtronic. And he they would sit and talk everything over. And I think he lost that. And I think he needs to... He needs to, he owns the company, so he's not going away, but he needs to build people around him that uh, he can really trust, not just junior people, but some senior people. And uh, and really reflect and get back to what does Facebook stand for? And be clear that they're not clear on what the, who they'll allow on their platform, who they won't. They're kind of all over the map. And so, of course, I've never agreed at all with the premise that, you know, I get to use your platform in turn. You take my data, but you don't tell me you're using it. So I just don't agree with the the core premise. I'd rather I like a LinkedIn a lot better. Where Satya, Microsoft, and people at LinkedIn have a very solid platform, and they're very clear about it. Well, he's also. It seems like there's a bet the company strategy right on, on the metaverse. Again, I don't know how that's tied. Maybe it's tied to the core premise of of connecting people, um, but. Yeah, I can't think of a lot of other companies where I see they're they're told you that they're going to change their entire business, uh, you know, in a few years. Well, he probably shouldn't like Elon Musk formed a new company, but 
the metaverse he's betting you know, he said he spent 10 billion on it last quarter or last year uh you know and that's that's Stock's a good down number. 70% yeah <laughs> yeah exactly that's a big number uh and uh it's a totally different business in my opinion and it, the proof isn't there yet maybe it will be uh but i watch my grandson playing with these things like you know and uh, he's chasing gorillas he says but it whatever i'd rather him not playing soccer chasing chasing kids on the soccer field and chasing the ball you know than i would so yeah. i think it's got to prove it so. but he's got a winner i just think he needs to modulate that winner and get it uh, brought in. He's got it. You know, it grew too fast. And sometimes you do grow too fast. When I was running the microwave business, we grew too fast. We had some quality problems. And hey, that was my responsibility for pushing the growth too fast, pushing the uh, you know the pedal, the metal, so to speak. You know, you mentioned Cheryl Sandberg. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I think again, sort of in objective valuation of leadership, it feels like she got a little bit of a free pass for a lot of the stuff that went on <laughs> at Facebook under her watch uh or you know a lot of the Cambridge Analytica and all this stuff over the last five or ten years when she was running this stuff is that I, I know he's not going to leave it so it get points at him but I, I feel like that's kind of been a little bit of a buried story that's probably true I don't know what the interaction between them was and what he was telling her and what yeah what they're talking about how much he knew how much she knew uh it was pretty well known but both of them knew about Cambridge Analytica back in 2000 I wrote a case on it back in 2016 and they didn't say anything until it came out in the media. I think it's Wall Street Journal, one of the media, uncovered it in 2018. And that's when it became a scandal. And they kind of covered it up. And that's the other thing. You can't get away with that today. Today, everything you do is going to come out. I remember I used to say to people, Mitch, if somebody dies in Russia in one of our with one of our products, don't think we can say, oh, no one's going to know about it. It'll be all over the world. It'll be all over the Internet. So just go address the problem, figure out what went wrong. But what's the next generation leader going to need differently from, you know, the generations that are that are leading today? What, what's going to be the same and what's going to be different? I think the key is how are you going to inspire people around a common purpose to get them to step up and give you their hearts? Today, people want leaders to lead with their hearts. And by that, I mean they have passion for the business. They have compassion for the customers, empathy for their employees and courage. We talked about courage earlier. Those are the qualities. Yes, they're smart, but I've studied, I've seen well over 100 leaders who failed. None of them failed because they weren't smart enough. They failed because they didn't know how to lead with their hearts. And I think that's what the millennials and Gen Xers, millennials and Gen Z want in their leaders. And they're going to insist on it. And frankly, the younger leaders coming up have that. So you can't just be a directive command and control type leader today. You've got you've to gotta lead with your heart. You have to care about people. You know, I was talking to a leader today, he was a Gen Xer, and he, he was saying, you know, uh, yeah, we're never going back to nine to five schedules. We're just not doing it. And, uh, and why would you? You know, why not give people flexibility? But he said, I want people back in the office. I want them working in teams. I want them being mentored. If their work just is just running computer uh, programming, they can do that at home. But if they're interacting, engaging with an engineering team, a marketing team, he said, I'd like them here. Now, maybe not every day, but uh, I understand that well. So I think leaders got to be much more flexible. So more you think these, these leaders, the 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 older gentlemen, mostly leaders with millions of dollars of office space, who are declaring that 100% of the people have to come back in the office, you think this is going to be a failure? It's not going to happen. Yeah. But I do think, yeah, <laughs> the, the one business I wouldn't want to be in is commercial office space. Yeah. <laughs> we got way too much of it. 
And, uh, you know, some companies, big companies, now these tend more on the IT side, but they're going to what they call hoteling. So, Robert, if you want to come into the office, fine, just call up. And yeah, the consulting for, firms for, always yeah. had that, yeah. You know, and so, but this is, uh, I think we'll, we'll see much more flexibility. And they're going to make your office more fun, so you'll want to come back. I think that's it's got to become much more fun. I was at Bloomberg the other day. I'm talking about the company, you know, and they do everything they can to make it fun. Of course, free food and everything else, but still, they want to attract people to come there. And uh, that mean 100% of the people are going to be there don't need to be. But uh, I do think it'd be much more flexible and adaptable workplace. But what I don't agree with is this thing that came out in July. That I, I think, oh my gosh, what are people thinking? Quiet quitting. So, Robert, I've never seen more people argue over a term that no one actually knows what it means or who came up with it. Where and they spent more, as I said, I I wrote one article that said if people just stop talking about this, they could have more time for work or more time for in in their personal life. (laughs) I I agree, but I just say people look, Medtronic's mission is to restore people to full life and health. If if that doesn't turn you on, that's fine. You can go trade stocks at Merrill Lynch or watch ticker tape. And, but if it turns on, you'll have a fabulous career. But if it doesn't, it's okay. It's not for everybody. And so I think people that aren't all in, I think you want to get people all in with their hearts and hearts, mind, body, spirit. You want to have the whole person. That's your job as a leader to inspire. And I think that what we're moving to is not the command. We've moved away from command and control, but the new leadership is going to be the leader as coach, the coach who cares about his or her people. They can organize them in their sweet spots. They can align them around mission and values. They can challenge them to do better, to reach their full potential. Coaches can be very challenging, and they're out there helping them. And if we can get people, a leaders leading like that, it's going to make a big difference. That's what the new leaders have to do. Yeah, and I, and I agree with you. The, the one thing I've seen in some of the discussion I've heard, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this. You know, a lot of the, you know, Gen uh, Z leaders, I think, who come about are doing things differently you know there there has been a weird suspension of disbelief in the last 10 years where you didn't have to make money right so people always look at tony shea and stuff and and he's done some brilliant stuff but his company's never made you know any money and i I think that's a you know in some time periods you wouldn't even get off the the ground for that one of the things that i've heard from leaders though is is that they feel like they're their plate just keeps expanding, right? They have to be good at the business stuff. They have to be good at the people stuff. They now are asked around social issues. They're asked to be the head right. of the DEI initiative. And there's a real leader burnout. Like I, I actually have been wondering whether we're going to see shorter tenure because I think we're we're asking people and they're like, look, I, I just want to do this one thing really well with great people. And I don't want to worry about the rest of the world. Is some of the new age like not focused enough? Because again, at the end of the day, you still have to have a great product that customers like. And if you're trying to boil too many oceans, it's going to be, you can lose sight of that. And I would argue that eventually makes money. You're absolutely right. You have to make money. That's the bottom line. But that's the result of creating. I tell people in my classroom, if you don't create better value in your customers, there are lots of ways to create value. If you don't have a more brilliant product, better services, better prices, whatever it is, you have to create better value in your customers. You'll be out of business. And what we need to re-understand, we have this employee revolution going on. We need to understand what motivates our people. If it's just sitting at home and doing the minimal amount, I don't want them in my company. But if it's motivating them around a common purpose, hey, we're making a difference here. We're really excited about Hubert Jolie did this at Best Buy. So, yeah, we did it at Medtronic. Get people really excited about the work and what we're doing to help people. And I've seen people doing that in the insurance business now. 
trying to protect people. As Oxa calls it, protect what matters. Or, you know, and in the banking business, uh, banking business are there to help people have secure financial futures. Not for you guys to make a lot of money off me on hedge funds, but no, we're here to. And so that's where you inspire people. That's the leader's job, to inspire people to step up and to give you, you know, and, and feel like I'm growing. I'm learning. This is fun. We're winning. Do you, do you feel like they can be, again, t- from a tenure, like always on in a 24 by 7? That the Is the burden no. actually no. different today or no? Yeah, it's much tougher today. Much tougher than when I was. Because you're you're, you're drawn into all these external issues. Yeah. Before, just keep your head down and perform. Much tougher. But I think every leader's got to take at least 20 minutes out and uh, do some form of introspection, reflection, something. Say, hey, how did I show up today? Did I enjoy leading? Did I have a good day? Uh, was it fulfilling? Did I accomplish anything? Did was I inspiring to people? And if the answer to that is no, too many days in a row, you you got to quit and move on, or take time off and refresh, renew. Yeah, a lot, I I think a lot of people have been switching jobs. Really needed three months off, right? Yes, yeah, that's, that's right. And, and be able to have that discussion. Yeah, and some people just switch for the sake of switching, and then they, you know why do they go? You know, the next place is no better than the last one, maybe worse. Yeah, well, they'll they'll pick the two things that it's like relationships. They'll pick the two things they didn't have in their last relationship, but they'll forget the four things that you know they they really liked. So, Bill, last last question for you. This is this is multivariant. It could be personal or professional or singular or repeated. But what's a mistake that you've made in your life or career that you've learned the most from? Ah, uh, what's a mistake I've made? I learned most from trying to become CEO of Honeywell. And that goes all the way back to my father, who was encouraging me to grab for that brass ring. And, uh, you know, I was in a leading position to do it, but I wasn't happy. But I was covering it up. I was pretending kind of I was kind of faking it to make it uh, pretending like, oh, I can do this. I can take on any problem. Yeah, I can take on any problem. But is that what how I want to spend my life? I don't want to spend my life that way. And so thinking I had to run something really big. Yeah. When I went to Medtronic, it was a mid-sized company. Now it's a lot, you know, it's gone from 750 million to 32 billion. So it's grown up a bit. But the important thing for me was finding some place where people, I felt like I loved the work and I loved the people I was working with. And we talked about values and I could be myself. Honeywell, I felt like I couldn't be myself. I had to, uh, I was put in a certain kind of mold and that wasn't who I was. And so, you know, everyone wants to be themselves. So that's what I learned from that mistake. And so really encouraging people to be themselves. Awesome. Well, Bill, where can people find more about you and your work and your books? BillGeorge.org. You can go on Amazon, just put in Bill George, put in True North. And my new book, The Emerging Leader Edition, will come out. because I wrote this book because I really want to inspire the next generation to step up and take over now. The baby boomers have had their day. They had their 30 years in charge. Now we need new generation leaders that knows how to lead through a crisis, knows how to inspire people, knows how to lead with their hearts as well as their heads. And that's what the younger leaders are doing. And uh, I think it's time for them to take over. All right. Well, Bill, thank you for joining us today. Uh, your work has had a, a deep influence. So I was very excited to have the chance to uh, chat with you uh, about leadership. Thank you for having me. It's been great. You asked great questions. So thanks. <laughs> Try. All right. You can learn more about Bill and his work on the episode page at robertglazer.com. Thank you again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.